Well, Titus chapter number one, let's go there and we're going to wrap this up tonight. Uh, our series is called Letters from a Pastor, uh, a Pastor's How-To Manual. That's what Titus is. Titus and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy were Paul's communications to two young men that were pastoring Titus uh, here in Crete, Timothy in the city of Ephesus, and Paul just wrote them instruction on how to do it. Well, this is a how-to manual for pastors, and Paul jumps right into it at the beginning. He tells, him to, he tells Titus to set things in order and to do that by ordaining elders in every city, and he just, boy, we're not into the book very far before he gets to that. Um, he is to ordain these elders. Here's the catch. Not everybody can be an elder. That word elder and bishop and pastor, all the same thing. Um, not everybody can be a pastor. It's not because the pastor's special. It's because God has set up a group of requirements, a group of standards that are not to be turned away. So he's, he's to ordain elders, it says, in every city. And God shares with, uh, God shares through Paul he shares with Titus in this passage what he expects from these elders. So we started on this, you might, if you were with us two weeks ago, we started on this um, and we looked at what it said in verse number, seven, uh, verse number five, rather, where, where Paul writes to Titus and he says this, For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. That's why he's there. What you'll learn is that Timothy was sent there first and may not have been, to accomplish, been able to accomplish this, so Titus was here to take care of it now. Titus may have been a little older than Timothy. He may have had more ministry experience. Or he just may have had a different personality altogether. And maybe what they needed was someone that would set that place in order. It seems like there may have been a little, you know, the end of the book of Judges where it says everyone was doing right or doing that which was right in their own eyes. Maybe there was some of that going on in these cities throughout the island of Crete. And things were just not being operated in the church anyway. Things were not operating in order. So Paul said, Timothy, I left you there to set those things in order and to ordain elders in, in every city. So we've been focusing last week, and then we'll wrap this up tonight on that last part. And we're talking about the minister that God ordains. When it says in verse number five, to ordain elders in every city. Titus was to do that under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't Titus' opinion. Titus's opinion. It wasn't Titus picking and choosing. It was God ordaining these men through, through Titus. So I want to look at this tonight. Let me, let me use this as an introductory thing. Then we'll do a little bit of a review. God has always had high standards in his church for those in leadership. Whether it's a pastor or a deacon or any church leader, God's standards, and we said this two weeks ago, God's standards are not to be compromised, but they are to be held as non-negotiable guidelines for a church to embrace and uphold. Unless Jesus Christ returns beforehand, at some point, Mark Campbell is not going to be the pastor at this church, and it will fall to this body to look to the word of God and say, what do we look for in a pastor? And when that day comes, do that. Do that. We're going to talk tonight about, about the requirements of the pastor. Now, last time we were together, we talked about the role. Remember that? We looked at three different words in here. In verse number five, we found the word elder, and we said that refers to a pastor's maturity. And then in verse number seven, there's two different words, bishop and steward. Bishop talks about his responsibility. Steward talks about the pastor's authority. All of those words, elder, bishop, steward, pastor, they all refer to the same office, just different aspects of that office. As the elder the pastor is the model for the people. His maturity is to be that uh, is to be demonstrated in a godly life. He's to model a godly life and draw others to follow him in that. You be godly. Don't just have a godly pastor. You be godly. And then the second title, the bishop, as the bishop, he is a minister 
of the word of God. He's to take the word of God and give it to those who God has is, God is put into that local body. And then finally, as a steward, the pastor is the manager of the house of God. Uh, it's not his church. He's just the manager. Just as you, with your life, you're not the owner of your life. You're not the owner of your stuff. You're the steward. God has entrusted the house to you in which you live, or the car which you drive, or the money that you have, or the talents that you have, the gifts that you have. God has put those things in you for his glory and for you to edify his church. You have spiritual gifts Every believer gets at least one spiritual gift when they get saved. God has given you that gift to use for his glory and the edification of your church. So this is where the pastor, this is the role of the pastor. He, he has these positions. His authority is not to be exercised for his benefit or according to his will. His authority is to be exercised in leading the body to accomplish God's will for that church. This is how he, this is, how he uh, is to conduct himself. So that's what we talked about two weeks ago, the role of the pastor. Tonight we move on, beginning in verse number six, and we're going to talk about two things this evening. First, the requirements of the pastor, and, and then second, uh, our third point will be, well, this is, the requirements is actually our second point, right? And then the third point is going to be the resoluteness of the pastor. But let's start with the requirements. The requirements of the pastor, and let's read together verses 6, 7, and 8. It says, if any be blameless. Now remember, Titus is there to ordain elders. This is what you look for, Titus. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. Not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. All of these things describing the man that Timothy was to go from city to city, from town to town or village to village and ordain elders there this is what he's looking for. He's not looking for the highly educated. Now, it's okay if that pastor's highly educated, but that's not a biblical requirement. It's not, uh, it's not necessarily that he, he have wonderful tact and, and be eloquent. Thank the Lord, because I would get, I'd be out. That's not a biblical requirement. Now, it helps if he's eloquent. It helps if he knows how to put two words together. But that's not a requirement of God. What's happened in too many churches today is man has imposed his requirements on who they call his pastor. I watched this happen in a church. And it, it destroyed that church, nearly destroyed that church. I didn't know if the church was going to recover. They got some bad counsel. And they looked for the wrong things in a pastor. And that's who they called. And he got there in this month, one year, and he left that exact month, one year later. And it took him nearly two years to call a pastor. That's not how it works. What does God say the pastor ought to be? Here's the truth. I, did I put this on your worksheet? I, I should have. Being a pastor is not a vocational choice. It's, it's not a vocational choice. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, when I grow up, I want to be a pastor. Well, you may have that desire, but you don't go into the ministry because that's what you wanted to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 1, says this, Paul was called to be an apostle through the will of God. There is a calling into this role of pastor being a pastor is more than a job that one seeks. It's a calling from God. I fear that there is far too much negotiation going on with pulpit committees around the country about compensation when it comes to whether or not a man goes to a church to pastor there. I, I uh, know, and you probably know this too, that you can become an ordained minister online in less than 15 minutes. Now, I will put ordained minister in quotation marks and bold and a funny font and underline 
because you're not really ordained. It's a joke. There is a calling of God himself to men that he wants ordained in the ministry. That is not to raise my, position, my, my person up at all, but it does elevate the position that I hold. I take seriously the, the fact that God has called me to be a pastor. This is a calling. It's not a vocational choice. Well, I think I'll go into full-time ministry. Well, it's great to have a heart for that, but you don't get to choose that. Paul said he was called to be an apostle through the will of God. He's telling him to ordain, uh, ordain elders in every city, but you just don't get to ordain anybody you like or anybody you want to be an elder, Titus. Here's what you're to look for. So I want to look at some of these requirements for the elder tonight. And then I've got a great summation for this evening, if I don't say so myself. Um, because here's what I want you to watch. As we make our way through these requirements, as what God is expecting from the pastor, the elder, the bishop, is it not, it's what you're going to see, is it not something every Christian ought to aspire to? Now I just shot my, there's my bullet. There's my conclusion bullet. You don't have to stick around to the end now. You can go home, read these three or four verses and say, pastor said that we ought to aspire to this. This is just looking like Jesus is what he's calling the pastor to do, which is every one of us ought to do. But I've broken these down into four different, four different uh, categories, these requirements. Let's look at them. The first one is moral requirements. Moral requirements. He said in verse number six, he's to be blameless. Blameless means he's, he's not perfect. It means to be, he's to be above reproach. He's not to be accused of something. He's to be blameless because of who he represents. Verse 7 says he is the steward of God. Vine's expository dictionary of Old and New Testament words says that that word blameless means not merely acquittal, but the absence of a charge against him or an accusation. It's not that he's perfect. He's just not chargeable. You can't charge him with being, he's, he's habitually this or he's habitually that. Now, we'll, uh, let's see what he talks about in here. He says he's not to be soon angry. Might there be a time when a pastor gets angry when he's not filled with the spirit and he is, he is angry and he's sinning in his anger? Yes. But if that pastor has a pattern in his life of being quick-tempered, he's chargeable. You can come and say, well, he has a bad temper. It's one thing if a person gets angry over something one time, and if you, you blow up one time, that's one thing. I'm not going to go around saying about you, well, he's just got a bad temper. But if that happens again and again and again and again, somebody needs to talk to that pastor. That's what it means by being blameless. There's not a habitual pattern of these sins. He's not perfect, but he doesn't violate these things habitually. So he's, he's blameless. There's a, there's a speaker out there. You may have heard of Danny Aiken. Um, boy, he, some of the messages he preaches, especially to preachers, I feel like my shin is bruised from knee to ankle when he's done. He wrote an article here a couple of years ago. The article was entitled, Integrity in Ministry, What God Expects of His Ministers. Well, I jumped on that article. I thought, well, I need to know. This is just a short paragraph out of it. It says, a morality crisis exists in the ministry. Immorality has reached an epidemic stage in the evangelical community, both in the pulpit and in the pew. The secular media exploits every failure while the church of God reels in heartbreak, confusion, and distrust as once respected leaders are repeatedly exposed in sin and shame. Are you like me? Do you get tired of picking up a religious uh, magazine or going to a Christian website and reading of yet another big name preacher who is simply living a lie? And the truth comes out, and it's an absolute mess. I'm ashamed 
for my calling as a pastor. I'm ashamed for my Savior. I get tired of reading them. Pastors who sexually sin, they have an affair, whatever, whatever it looks like. Pastors who sexually sin, and I'm not being harsh here, they have lost their blamelessness. You, now listen, I'm not, I'm not talking about no grace, I'm not talking about no mercy, I'm not talking about that. But they've given up their blamelessness. Here's the sentence. Mark this. If morality is a qualification for a pastor, then immorality must be a disqualification. Is he beyond grace? No. Is he beyond forgiveness or restoration? Absolutely not. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. But he has given up his blamelessness and his right to be in the ministry. There are far too many pastors on a, national, on a national platform who have sinned publicly, admitted their sin. They go through some type of, of circus-oriented restoration process, and the next thing you know, they're right back in the pulpit pastoring a church. God says no. God says he's to be blameless. Not perfect. Blameless. Don't, don't give up on that one. Don't weaken on that. If morality is a qualification, immorality is a disqualification for ministry. There's other places he can serve. He just can't be a pastor because he's no longer blameless. That's the moral requirement here. Then there are domestic requirements. Look in verse number six again. Domestic requirements. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife having faithful children not accused of riot or ruly. Domestic requirements. Husbands of one, uh, the husband of one wife. Right away, that discredits women who are pastors. Not being sexist, I'm just saying this is what it is. God has called men to be pastors. It's not a slam against the female. Um, my wife will tell you she has absolutely zero desire to be a pastor. Zero. Husband of one wife. That literally means a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Not one woman at a time. A one-woman man. I believe if a man has been divorced and remarried, if he's been divorced, he's no longer qualified to be a pastor. You say, boy, pastor, you're raising the bar pretty high. I'm not raising the bar at all. I'm just reading what God says. You see, the pastor is to be and again, I, this, I, I hope this does not come across as self-promoting at all. I'm just talking about the office to which God's put me. But the pastor is to be the model of a Christian for the church. He's to be a one-woman man. It's not saying he has to be married. But if he is, it's got to be to a woman. And it can only be to one living woman. What if the pastor's wife dies and he remarries? Can he still pastor? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 7 addresses that. There's a standard to be held, church. When it comes to marriage, God expects that, that pastor and that wife to be together forever till one of them die. Now, now let, me, let me back up and say this, quickly say this. That doesn't mean divorced Christians are to be treated like some second-class citizen. That's not what this is at all. But there are, there are certain things that are off-limits to a divorced man in a church. One is the pastorate. Two is the office of deacon. I was talking to Brother Duttry the other day. He and I had, I, I enjoyed Brother Duttry, didn't you? Sheila told me she enjoyed him because he preached so quickly. I didn't appreciate that at all. And I know the rest of you were thinking it, so don't, don't act like you weren't thinking it. I was talking to him, and he said, you know, he said in, the, in the, the church that I pastored, he said, we had some godly men that were divorced, and they would never be qualified to serve as deacons. He said, so I just made what I call the leadership committee because they had some spiritual gifts that were so valuable to our church. 
You see, God has, God has a standard that he upholds for his leaders. But just because a person, a man or a woman, is divorced doesn't mean there's some type of a second-rate Christianity going on. God uses all the people in a church body to serve in various forms. He just said in these two offices, we're going to, uphold, we're going to keep the standard higher for this. There's, there's reasons for this. There's modeling reasons for it. I, I think it's so ironic how some people treat divorce as if it's a sin that can never be recovered from. Uh, well, I'll name the church. I just won't tell you where it's at. I know of a church named Liberty Baptist Church. How ironic is this? A church named Liberty Baptist Church where if you're divorced, you can't even sing in the choir. That's ironic. I'd change your name. If that was your church, you need to change your name. Change it to Bondage Baptist Church. That's ridiculous. It talks about the marriage. It says he's to be the husband of one wife. Then it talks about his children in verse number six. He's to have faithful children. That means his children are to be believers. He is to lead his children toward Christ and they're to be saved. Paul expounds on that a little bit because what if that child's only three years old? Well, he's not going to be saved. So Paul expounds on that and he says they're not to be accused of, of riot or unruly. They're not to be wild. They're not to be out of control or rebellious. In fact, it says they're not to be accused of it. The pastor's children are supposed to have a good testimony. Whether we like it or not, pastor's kids are held to a different standard than the rest of the kids in a church. Subconsciously, I'm not saying that. My kids didn't ask me to say that to you tonight. That's just the way it is. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. So the scripture says that his first ministry is to be to his family. He is to lead them spiritually, to walk after Christ, to point his children. Can he get his children to be saved? No. But he is to point them toward salvation. He's to point them toward Christ. He's not to tolerate rebellion in his home. He's not to tolerate what the Bible calls riotous living in his home. He's not to do that. He's to lead them spiritually, to walk toward God's word and God's will. This man has these domestic, he's got moral requirements, he's to be blameless. He's got domestic requirements, he's to be the husband of one wife and his children are to be believers that are not accused of having a bad testimony for Christ. Moral requirements, domestic requirements. Verse 7, social requirements. Social requirements. This is how he gets along with other people. He is to be blameless in his testimony as the steward of God. Now you can see all these here, uh, but they'll break up like this. First, you're going to get these five negative social requirements. He's not to do this. He's not to do this five times that he's not to be. Then, the, then the, Paul is going to give Titus six positives. So let's make our way down through verse number seven and eight and look at these requirements. First, the social requirements. And the first one is this. He's not to be self-willed. Self-willed. That's a pretty strong adjective in the Greek language. It means he's not to be arrogant and serve his own interests. He's not to assert his will with no regard for God's will. I've, I've heard of pastors like that. You may have heard of them. Maybe you've known them. Where it's their will being pushed in a church instead of God's will being sought and pursued. He's, he's disqualified himself. It's not about his interest. It's about God's interest. Dr. John Gill said he is not doing things in worship in the house of God and the ministry of the word, the administration of the ordinances according to his own will, but according to the will of God as revealed in the word of God. Not self-willed, God-willed. The pastor ought to be passionate about the will of God, not just for his own life, not just for his family, but for the church. What does God want the church to do? Then it says, not soon angry. We would say he's not to have a short fuse. There, there are times, Christian, when you ought to be furious, but do so without sin. You ought to be angry about some things, but not in a sinful way. That's why Paul would write back to the Corinthians. He'd say, be angry and sin not. 
Jesus went into the temple with a whip, angry, with perfect anger. He was angry and sinned not. This is talking about a pastor who's, who's quick-tempered. He's prone to anger. He'll fly off the handle and he'll, he's easily provoked. James 1.20 says, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of, God's, of God. You know what you'll find? Anger usually leads us, uh, explosive anger like that, it usually leads us to words or actions that we are going to regret. We may not admit it. Our pride won't let us admit it. But we'll think later when we've called down the temperature, the blood pressure, everything has got settled back down. We'll think to ourselves, man, I shouldn't have said that. Man, I shouldn't have did that. You know why? Because the anger that you and I have in our flesh, it does not work the righteousness of God. The pastor ought to be a model of this. He ought not to be quick-tempered. Watch out for that. The secret to a believer's behavior in every area of life, even in anger, is to be filled with the Spirit. This is not saying don't be angry. There are times to be angry. We just do so still filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's keep moving. Bell's telling me to hurry up. Not given to wine. Boy, we could stay here for a long time, but I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to blow right through this and move on. We got a long list to cover. Not given to wine. Literally, not given to means don't be alongside it. Don't be addicted to wine. Here's what you need to know, and you can do the homework. If you'll do genuine and unbiased homework, you will find this out. Old Testament or New Testament, in the Jewish society, wine was often either non-alcoholic or low in its alcoholic content because they diluted it with 8 to 10 parts of water. They could get drunk off their wine when they chose not to, but almost all the time they diluted their water with wine because it was an impure water. Timothy was so opposed to wine that even when he was sick, he wouldn't drink it. And Paul told him this, you need to take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Timothy was an abstainer. Paul said, you need to take wine for your stomach's sake, for medicinal purposes. So without getting into the whole thing, let me just say this. This is just going to be my blanket statement, and then we can debate it in private. We just don't have time tonight. But today, the pure water or safe juices to drink or safe beverages to drink are so available to most elders that it really is not justifiable for an elder, a pastor, or a bishop to be drinking any type of alcohol for their testimony's sake. Just abstain. I think there is, a, there is a biblical argument from Scripture. And this is just my opinion. Now, if you socially drink, that's between you and God. I think there is a biblical argument from Scripture that the best thing a Christian can do, whether, whether in the pulpit or the pew, there is a biblical argument that can be made that the best thing you can do is to not partake of alcoholic beverage. There's a biblical... Now, Are you free to drink wine? Are you free to drink beer? Paul says, all things are lawful unto me. Yeah. But all things are not expedient. That word expedient means the best choice. So I won't belabor the point here. I just believe when it comes to preachers who go out drinking with their church members, I think they're shooting themselves in the foot today. I think it damages the testimony. Um, And we can have a difference of opinion on that, by the way. You and I can differ on that. That's not something that breaks my fellowship with you. But I I just want you to know, you're not going to have to worry about my picture showing up on Facebook of me tossing one back. It's not going to happen. I think there's there's a higher standard that pastors are called to. And, and God has the right to do that. It's his church. And it's, and it's his man. So not to be given to wine. Let's keep going quickly. It says no striker. That word literally means this. He's not to be given to violence. I was in a church service one time when a guy was being unruly. Smaller church, not in this state. Guy was being unruly when the pastor offered to take him out back. 
from the pulpit threatened to take him out back. The Bible says the pastor's not to be given to that. That's not the pastor's first response. That's not how a pastor is to deal with an unruly church member. Plus, I don't care who you are, you can't whip everybody. So that's, that's not a good course of action to take. Not a striker. He's not to be quickly angered. And one of the reasons is because someone who's quickly angered might also be prone to violence. Not a striker, Paul says. Not given to filthy lucre. That means that the pastor is not to make money in a dishonorable way. We do not have the time to run down that list of TV preachers who I think are disqualified just on that one. I will give you one. March 17th, 2020. And I may butcher this guy's name, but I really don't care. Kirby John H. Caldwell. He was a, a Texas megachurch pastor. He was an advisor to Obama and advisor to Bush Jr. He pled guilty on March 17, 2020 to federal wire fraud and is serving six years in federal prison for bilking mostly elderly investors out of three and a half million dollars. The pastor of a church. That's what it's talking about. Not given to filthy lucre. Now look, you as a church family, you need to know this and you do it well here. You ought to take care of your pastor and his family. You're responsible to do that. You are absolutely responsible to take care of the pastor and his family and the staff and their family. You're responsible to do that. But that pastor is not to be motivated to it. He's not to love money and he's not to make money in a dishonorable way. If it is, God looks at that money and he says that money is filthy. God help the pastor that uses the pulpit and uses the word of God to get money from people. God help that pastor. It's not to do it. It's a disqualifier. That man should never pay your debt to society. Sure, six years, but he ought never to pastor again. He's taken away his blamelessness. Next one. So those are, what is that? That's our social requirements. We have moral requirements, domestic requirements, social requirements. Those are the five negatives. Now Paul turns the attention to spiritual requirements, spiritual requirements, and there's six of these positives. These are for the same purpose. They are to help the pastor maintain his blamelessness. Do this, he says. Verse number six. He's to be a lover of hospitality. Hospitality means showing affection to strangers. More than opening one's home, it's opening one's heart. It's a way of living. Pastors should genuinely care about people, care about their needs, do what they should do to meet those needs. It's basically showing, and, then, and again, is this not for every Christian? It's showing Christ-like compassion. You remember the whole story on the, the Good Samaritan. It was all about the guy who showed compassion. Who is my neighbor? Anybody in need was Jesus' answer, even if it's somebody you don't much care for. The Samaritans didn't care for the Jews, and yet that Samaritan helped that Jew. It's showing Christ-like compassion, a lover of hospitality. And then that next one is interesting, isn't it? A lover of good men. My, uh, my, grandson, uh, my grandson has a propensity to like the bad guys in the superhero stories. We're working on it. I want to teach him how to be a lover of good men. It says, a lover of good men, his desire to be a good man before God attracts him to other men who are going the same direction. There's a brother who wants to be a godly man. I, I, can, I can have a relationship with that guy. When, when we desire to be good before God, it builds in us a desire uh, for relationship and fellowship with others that are like-minded. Can I tell you, men especially, choose your friends wisely. I, I teach that to teenagers. I've taught that to teenagers since 1989. But I will say the same thing to adult men and adult women. Choose your friends wisely. Love good people. The people that hang around you, that you hang around most, 
that impact you the most. And the people you hang around most are the ones that impact you the most. They ought to encourage you to be a better Christian than you are. They ought not to drag you down. That's what it means to be a lover of good men. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 2, a good man obtaineth the favor of the Lord. Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Who doesn't want to be around guys like that? I want to be around guys that, that the Lord is ordering their steps because I want the Lord to order my steps. I want to be around somebody who has obtained the favor of the Lord because I want the favor of the Lord. He's a lover of good men. Church leaders should be known as friends of godly people. Now, now we ought to be friendly to everybody. We really should. Somebody walks in here and they look totally different than you, you ought to be friendly to them. A man who will have friends must show himself friendly. We are called to be friendly people. But your best friends ought to make you more like Christ. And Christian, if they don't, they're not doing you any favors. Be a lover of good men. Then it says he's to be sober. That doesn't mean not drunk. That means he's to be, he's to be of sound mind, sensible. He is to be cool-headed. He acts with wisdom, with common sense. In his judgment, in his action, he's, he's sensible. He's not shooting from the hip. One that is in command of his mind. He controls his thoughts. Do you remember what Paul said? He said, I bring my thoughts into captivity. Don't, can I just encourage you with this? Especially if you're given to fear or anxiety. If you struggle with anxiety. Learn how to bring your thoughts into captivity. Control your mind. They don't have to run free. If they start running, jerk back on that bridle. Pull that horse in. Bring it into captivity. This sober-minded means to be controlling your thoughts, steady in going. He's not going to be distracted by those who are conducting themselves immorally or foolishly. He's not going to, uh, he's not going to be affected by circumstance. He is... He's understanding uh, in his mind. He's of sound mind. Then it says just. Uh, we'll move quickly here. Just. That's a common New Testament word. Sometimes it's translated righteous in the New Testament. Just and righteous often go back and forth. This means he's just in his character and in his conduct, in his relationship with God, in his dealing with others. Just, just mark Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9 describing Noah. The Bible says this. A just man and perfect or mature in his generations. He was a good man. He was just. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 6. Blessings are upon the head of the just. The picture is God pouring out his blessings on the righteous man. The pastor ought to demonstrate that. Holy is the next one. He's to be holy, devout, true to God's direction. God's purpose in his life, he's to be right in line with it. He's to follow that. He practices genuine obedience to God in his life. The word is used to describe God himself, and we are to be holy because God is holy. So he's holy. He's, he's all of these things. The last one there is temperate. Temperate means he's self-controlled. Uh, what you see on the outside is the result of the Holy Spirit's control on the inside. He's disciplined. I don't know if I left this on your worksheet or not, and I don't remember where I, I read this, but it says the outside always tattles on the inside. Who you are genuinely inside is going to come out. The outside always tattles on the inside. George Brooks in his commentary on Titus said a pastor cannot afford to live carelessly and without any restraints on his behavior, he has to be self-controlled. <coughs> Excuse me. He has to be temperate. John MacArthur, in his commentary on Titus, and MacArthur pulls no punches. He is a pastor, and he, so he talks to pastors very plainly. He said, a pastor who is not self-controlled, who does not continually monitor his own life, submitting his sin to the Lord's cleansing... 
Keeping a clear conscience is not fit to lead, to lead God's people. If he acts right only when others are looking, he is doing just that, acting. Self-controlled. That's what the word temperate means. So you have all of these, these uh, requirements. Moral, domestic, social, spiritual. Pastors are to be men of integrity in every one of those things. And you have the right to expect that of your pastor. You have that based on the word of God. There was a man named R.A. Torrey. You've heard of R.A. Torrey before. He traveled for a long time with D.L. Moody. He knew D.L. Moody perhaps better than anyone else did outside of Moody's wife. He wrote a little pamphlet called Seven Reasons, or, or it was called Why God Used D.L. Moody, and it had seven reasons that Moody was so greatly used in the ministry of the word. The number one reason, this is what R.A. Torrey wrote about Moody. The first thing that accounts for God using D.L. Moody so mightily was that he was a fully surrendered man. Every ounce of his short 280-pound body belonged to God. He was, uh, everything he was and everything he had belonged wholly to God. I'm not saying that Mr. Moody was perfect. He was not. If I attempted to, I presume I could point out some defects in his character. It does not occur to me at this moment what they were, but I am confident that I could think of some if I try hard. I have never yet met a perfect man, not one. I have known perfect men, though, in the sense that the Bible uses the word perfect, men who are holy gods, out and out gods, fully surrendered to God, with no will but God's will. That's the pastor. Those are the requirements of the pastor. And Paul's telling Timothy, if those men don't measure up to these requirements, don't ordain them into the ministry. Then the last thing, and we'll go through this quickly, the resoluteness of the pastor. Will you give me five minutes? The resoluteness of the pastor, that's in verse number nine. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able to, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Resoluteness. Paul in Colossians 1.23, Paul uses this phrase, being grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Grounded and settled. A pastor is to drop anchor on who he is and what he is and what he believes and not sway from that. God's given him these requirements. God's given him this commission. He, this is what he's to do. Paul says there's two things of how the pastor is supposed to carry this out. First, he says in the first part of verse number nine, he is to be settled in the word, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. Holding fast, settled in the word of God. Preaching is more than just animated talk with alliterated points and some, move, and some moving stories that might tug at your heart. There are a lot of people, have you ever gone up to... Uh, Jonesboro, Tennessee, you ever gone up there during the storytelling festival that they have? There are some very talented public speakers when it comes to telling stories and they can move you with what they say. That doesn't mean they're preaching. Preaching is the act of proclaiming what God's word says and bringing people to understanding that word. That's what preaching is. He is to be settled in this word. That word faithful. Do you see that? You see that word faithful in verse number nine? Hold fast the faithful word. That word means that the Bible is worthy of your trust. It's worthy of your belief. You can absolutely count on it. When a pastor preaches this word, he can be absolutely sure that the Bible is true. So he can proclaim it with confidence. What he says is God's word. Cover to cover is God's word. It's the faithful word. And with the conviction that this is God's word, he'll hold fast to it. He's not going to sway from it. John Phillips says this, a pastor who does not take God's inspired inerrant word at face value is disqualified from holding the office. It's the faithful word of God. So he has to be convinced that the Bible's true, and once convinced, preach it. 
There's, the, the, there's this call for him to be settled in the word. And then the second part of verse 9, strong in the work. Strong in the work. There are two things that it says in verse number 9 at the second phrase. In this, uh, in this holding fast to the word, he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. The first is exhort. The second is convince gainsayers. So first, he's to be capable of exhorting. Exhorting. One of the pastor's responsibilities is to call you into a closer walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that word exhort, it's the word parakaleo. The word for the Holy Spirit is parakletos. It means to, literally, it means to come alongside of. So the Holy Spirit for you and me in this life, he comes alongside of us and helps us live the Christian life. That's what he does. The pastor is to exhort or to come alongside of you and call you and help you to walk closer with Jesus Christ. True pastors know this is their responsibility. True pastors knows at times that means encouraging the believer, but at times that also means chastising the believer and exhorting them and saying, no, what you're doing is wrong. So for a pastor to stand in a pulpit and say, we're never going to denounce sin because people feel bad about themselves anyway, he's disqualified from pastoring because he's not being a faithful exhorter of the word. So he's to be capable of exhorting then he's to be capable of exposing. It says to convince the gainsayers. The gainsayers are disputers of the truth who refuse God's word. And to convince them, you've got to be able to refute those objections. The gainsayers are those that are sitting in there and they say, well, I don't think the word of God says that. The pastor's responsibility is to know the word of God and preach it effectively to where they're left without excuse. To where they have to admit, well, yes, the Bible says that I don't agree with it. Most of the time, that's the case. Most of the time, the skeptics, it's not that they don't believe the Bible says that. It's that they don't believe with what the Bible says. They, they don't believe what the Bible says. The pastor is to be capable of exposing that. The gainsayers. Uh, there are always those in a church who cause dissension. Who refuse to walk after God's God's commands. Don't be that person. That's not a spiritual gift. Don't, don't be this person. You heard about the guy who objected everything that went on in church. No matter what they were proposing at the church, this guy objected to it. It didn't matter what it was. He was just opposed. So the pastor stood up one day and he announced, he announced to the church that the church had been gifted by someone a beautiful brand new chandelier to be hung in the church's auditorium. And it was, and he had the chandelier, and uh, in, in it was already, they'd already received the gift. They had it. And sure enough, when it came time for people to comment on it, this guy stood up and opposed to receiving the chandelier. And the pastor, he knew it was coming. The pastor knew it was coming because that's all this guy ever did. And he said, look, the, the gift is ours. We don't have to pay anything for it. It's already been delivered. How can you oppose this? And the guy's response was this. First of all, preacher, I don't think we have anybody that can play that thing. And second, what we need in this church is more light. <laughs> there are some people, their entire, their entire personality is, I'm just against it. It, it doesn't matter. I'm just against it. They're gainsayers. There will always be gainsayers in a church. And a pastor can't just pray that those members just move to another church. Now, he will do that. I will, I will promise you that. But they may not move. So he's got to be able to convince them and to bring them along. He needs to be capable to exhort and then he needs to also, he needs to be capable to, to address these gainsayers and to expose their thinking as wrong and anti-biblical and bring them along. And look, if you don't agree with the Bible, say that, but don't say that that's not what the Bible says. 
He's got to be able to do that. So that's the role and the requirements and the resoluteness of the pastor. This is what the Bible says. This is the minister that God ordains. It's what he was looking for on the island of Crete, the fifth biggest island in the Mediterranean Sea, a large island with a lot of cities. Paul tells Titus, go ordain elders in these, in these cities, and these are the men you're looking for. They look like this. That was true then, and these requirements haven't changed, so church don't let them change. May Faith Baptist Church, until Jesus comes back, may it always have pastors that are biblically qualified to be your pastor. Amen. Don't change that. You say, Pastor, are you planning on leaving or something? I really am not. But I also know that the scripture says I am not to boast myself of tomorrow because I don't know what a day may bring forth. I don't know. How many of you have heard of churches where the pastor, he just, he died of a heart attack? Or the pastor got killed in a car wreck? I, who knows? I just would hate to, I, I would just hate to be responsible to suddenly be taken away from this church by God's providence and taken to heaven and never have reminded you, church, of your responsibility to call pastors that square up with God's opinion and not yours. And if you leave this church and you go to another church, make sure that pastor is a godly pastor by God. You're not looking for somebody that you like. You're looking for someone who will stand and look you square in the eye, whether or not you like it, and tell you, but this is what the Bible says. That's what you'd want. That's what you and I need. We need that. God says, this is what this preacher looks like, and, and I'm responsible to live up to that. You're responsible to put yourself in a church where that's true. Always, always, in any situation, whatever the topic is, default to the word of God. This is the God, remember, who says, I'm the Lord, I change not. His opinions haven't changed. Let's just keep going with what the scripture says. All right? Let's stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer tonight. Thanks for the extra time. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for not just uh, creating us and putting us on this planet and even saving us, but leaving us to figure it out on our own. We are so thankful for the word of God that we can stand on it. The way we operate here at our church, you've told us how to do that. Lord, when it comes to the idea of the function of the church and its officers, especially here with the pastor, May you enable me to walk humbly before you and to strive to fulfill your requirements for the office of pastor. I pray for our church family. And Lord, I pray that you would help every one of us to strive to look like this. There's nothing in here that we get to blow off because we're not a pastor. Every one of these things make me look more like Jesus and less like myself. And I pray, God, that our church would recognize in your word how we can walk like Jesus and then help us to do it. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you, church. Thanks for being here tonight.